Hello and welcome to Last Week on Earth with Gary. Today's guest is Henry Eider, a globally recognized advisor, speaker, and broadcaster working at the frontier of the generative AI and synthetic media revolution. Enjoy, subscribe, and share. What has happened the last week that's caught your interest? The last week, as basically every week over the last nine months, has been absolutely full of interesting, worrying, exciting AI developments. Um, we've really seen this kind of convergence of, of sort of accessibility of these tools, efficiency, the amount of data they use, and the realism of the outputs they can generate, leading to just a frenzy in the space, right, of, of, of AI applications. And everyone is now wondering, well, how is this going to impact my job, my industry, my political kind of uh, operation, so to speak. So, you know, there is so much to pick. There is so much to, or so much to choose from in, in answering that question. But I guess one that really grabbed my attention was uh, yesterday, which was um, Monday, the 22nd of May, a fake AI generated image of the Pentagon on fire or a fire within the vicinity of the Pentagon was um, spread on Twitter by a, a fake account um, posing as a news website and was actually retweeted by Russia Today, the essentially Russian propaganda website. And this led to, over about a five-minute period, the stock markets, or at least it's been heavily linked to, a five-minute period where the stock markets in the US actually dipped and there was a sell-off, um, which then corrected within a five-minute window. But nonetheless, it still had that, that, that kind of moment. This is something that I've been anticipating for quite some time, the idea of AI-generated fakes being used to um, cause market manipulation or to target companies either to artificially inflate or attack their, their stock prices, um, you know, essentially as a form of financial fraud. Um, but this example was really notable for a couple of reasons. So one is that we saw, for example, this image of the Pope in a puffer jacket that went viral and fooled a lot of people. And at the time, a lot of people were like, this is kind of a whimsical example, right? This isn't a particularly um, high stakes use case. And maybe that's why people fell for it because their guard was down. It didn't really matter, right? Whereas this case obviously really does matter and it still seems to have fooled quite a lot of people. So that's really significant that high stakes fakes, so to speak, are still you know, as impactful in certain cases and believable to some people as lower stakes ones. The other is, of course, the kind of infrastructure of Twitter and what that role that played in how this fake spread. So because of the new verification system, this fake news account was able to be verified with the kind of Twitter blue framework. And then obviously with Russia Today, who then deleted the tweet, I may add, um, but nonetheless still tweeted it out it really leads to this difficult dynamic where people want breaking news and they want it as soon as possible. And Twitter has become the place for breaking news. But it's also become the place for disinformation and um, inaccurate news, right? And so we have this real trade-off between the kind of established, trusted news organizations who have to be really careful about how they um, do their news sourcing and verification Um perhaps being silent in the first half an hour of a of a fake like this going viral, which leaves a vacuum for bad actors to kind of say confidently, even if they're wrong, that this is real or this is fake. So that to me is a really significant case for a number of reasons. I imagine we will see more cases like this where perhaps there is a more 
direct intent to cause a company, a specific company, maybe it's cloning Jeff Bezos' voice saying, I'm abandoning my space exploration program, so we're going to invest it, all of that money into, into prime membership to bring the cost down, whatever, and then the stock price goes up, right? Or, or the, the invert you can imagine. So I feel like we're going to see a lot more of these kind of quite targeted attacks, which will take advantage of that sort of information vacuum that happens when you have that breaking news dynamic on platforms like Twitter. So that to me is really significant. Is it surprising that this isn't already happening a lot more? Because it, it seems pretty easy to do. And it, and clearly, like, generative AI can be used by, you know, amateurs or people can sort of um, develop their own imagery or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Or is it happening more? It's just that it's not getting as much attention. It's not. It's being shut down. So it's certainly happening more from a global perspective in particular. And, you know, I've seen cases in in African nations and in Southeast Asia where AI-generated fake images, which are, again, slightly more whimsical, more benign, of things like eggs growing on trees, for example, have have gone viral and people have seemed to believe them. But I don't think we've seen many cases where, again, these kind of high-stakes fakes, images that, you know, if they were real, could signal a terrorist attack on the Pentagon, right, in this context. We haven't seen as many of those really go viral and have this impact. And I think that's because you know, the news organizations that, for example, exist in the US are pretty prime, particularly in a place like DC, right, to sort of get on the ground and be like, this isn't this isn't happening. Um, whereas in other countries around the world where perhaps news institutions aren't as um aren't as solid or there aren't as many, um, there is more of a tendency, I think, for these kinds of fakes to have impact. And we've seen that historically, I say historically, you know, this is the kind of AI space, historically means two weeks ago now. But we've we've seen this with um, other forms of, of image manipulation with more traditional editing tools. Um, and in certain uh, countries, India and Brazil as well, in particular, um, where perhaps media literacy isn't quite as high as in, in some Western nations, you know, fakes spreading quite, quite pervasively of a much lower quality than some of the ones being AI generated. So I think it is becoming a growing problem. And I think this to me, as I mentioned, is significant precisely because it was a high stakes example. And yet it still seemed to fool people and have, you know, I mean, when we were talking about the Dow Jones dropping, right, having a sell off, I mean, that's potentially, you're talking potentially billions of dollars disappearing, right? So the stakes are really high. And I think the fact that Russia today put out a tweet about this is also worrying because obviously I wouldn't say Russia today are particularly friendly to the West, but they at least try to sort of pretend they have some kind of integrity. And if they are getting either fooled or tweeting this out in a rash way, that's also very concerning because if if we lose trust in all media organizations, not just the bad faith ones, it's going to be really damaging. I mean, this this problem is really complex in terms of how many people and entities are involved. There is the person or the entity that creates this deep fake or any kind of generative AI news. Then there's the media companies that uh, can retweet it or put it on social media or put it in news. Um, And then there's tech companies who somehow um, have the voice around where is this going? Ethics is, you know, heading in the right direction. We, you know, we want to keep developing AI and Personally, obviously, I'm I'm very for developing any kind of technology because it's exciting and because that's how we um, that's how we develop um, in our world. Yeah. However, there are certain 
ways that need to be certain things that need to be taken into account when developing technology, which are sometimes being taken into account, but mostly no because of the scale and the amount of money involved and interest. And then there's the government that obviously has issues, as you said, with the example yesterday that they have to deal with as well as the stock market and businesses. So there's just so many with one image, with one video or whatever it is, there's just so many people involved that don't necessarily even have to speak to each other about this problem. Okay, so my next question, we ask this, we have been asking this for years about AI in terms of what should be done, how should this be approached? And everyone's answer is, you know, different in, different uh, sectors need to speak to each other. Government and tech need to, you know, sit at the same table and develop ethical AI. And as great as that sounds, those are just words. It's not reality. It's, it's wishful thinking. It's not necessarily um, what is happening. So if we put aside wishful thinking, are there any steps that you can outline that would be a good idea to sort of approach this? I don't want to say just problem, this challenge and opportunity at the same time. Sure. So I think in this current climate, a lot of things that maybe once sounded like wishful thinking are starting to sound a little bit more uh, believable based on the stakes, right? We're seeing governments around the world both scrambling to invest in AI strategies to encourage innovation and growth from the business side in their country, but then also to to approach the, the threats. And indeed, we did see you know, the White House, Biden gathering all of the, the CEOs of the top AI companies together, um, you know, for a summit on this. Now, you know, what came of that, you know, probably not much, but I think we will see a massive shift in legislation over the next two, three years. I think we are going to see a real radical rethink of the AI landscape. Um, whether that's about data sourcing and data privacy issues, whether that's about labeling AI-generated outputs in ways that are transparent um, or disclosing, I should say, not necessarily even labeling, but just disclosing to audiences. Um, I think in terms of safety rails and what is deemed as a safe tool will also change. And I think we'll probably start to see as the EU AI Act has proposed auditing and companies being required to show proof that they have stress tested their tools against um, misuse. So I think a lot of legislation that perhaps in other contexts see uh, other contexts, sorry, seemed unrealistic, given the kind of concern that governments are having. And the case that I mentioned earlier will almost certainly add to that. Um, this this may no longer be a space where wishful thinking is so wishful. Having said that, there are other areas or other spaces where kind of stuff is being done. So I think there's an equally important role to be played here by companies who are developing ethical alternatives, right? And I feel, you know, if people care about this stuff, um, responsible development, responsible innovation is is ultimately going to hopefully, if not win out entirely, then certainly sort of attract both businesses and kind of individual consumers. Um, because A, it's it's ethical, it avoids the legal issues, but also as a user, it's 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 appealing on that level too. Um, I still think a lot of people don't understand how their data is used by platforms, by by companies to train their models and so on. But I feel in in the kind of AI age where your voice recordings could be used to clone your voice perfectly, suddenly people might start to be a bit more concerned. So, you know, I worked on a um, on a project with the partnership on AI um, to develop the first kind of guidelines on responsible generative AI and synthetic media. 
um, with a lot of um, big companies signing on to that, which is, you know, a sort of set of, I don't want to say kind of hard set principles, but certainly guiding points to sort of help frame how you should develop these technologies responsibly. So getting consent from the person being targeted, ensuring all data is securely stored and that any data usage is clearly and transparently disclosed. Um, again, disclosure of the outputs, whether that's kind of labeling on the actual content or if that's attaching some kind of metadata so people can sort of see what the image was um, uh, created by or, or where it was taken, if it's a real image, for example. So I think, yeah, responsible innovation is, is key. And then there's the kind of social side of things, which is if people are really unhappy with this, you'll start to see riots on the streets potentially or large protests. You know, we see that with transport unions already um, resisting automation of jobs, which perhaps some people would say are more suitable to automation. Um, but obviously the generative AI revolution that we've seen over the last year or so has really flipped the um, sort of traditional line on its head that low-skill, repetitive, manual jobs are going to be the first to be automated. Sure, some of them definitely have. But actually what we're seeing is knowledge work, creative industries, white collar jobs being, you know, being being threatened. So I feel that we will see increasing social unrest, particularly from perhaps social classes that have a little bit more sway to certain politicians, which in turn, I think will then power that legislative push as well. So I don't think it's as, um, I don't think it's as kind of airy fairy anymore to think that we will start to see some pretty concrete action on this from stakeholders across society okay well that's good to hear yeah don't bet on it though <laughs> yeah i know <laughs> i'm gonna take it with a don't enormous, put money on it enormous uh, ladle full of salt um <laughs> okay with the with the job market with labor realistically mm. how threatened is it obviously we can talk different sectors which i'm happy to do i'm happy to go into detail what is the actual level of threat I and, think... and maybe give it maybe a timeline because obviously we could be talking 10 years in the future we could be talking 20 years in the future or we could be talking about this year or next year timelines are always a bit of a fool's game especially with things moving as they are i mean i didn't expect things to develop as radically quickly as they have over the last year um, despite having worked in this space for about six. So I, I wouldn't want to give you solid, solid timelines. But I feel at the moment, a lot of the jobs that are at most risk are the ones where people actually refuse to innovate and adapt. So for me at the moment, most of the jobs that are most at threat are from people who either say, I'm not going to use AI to make myself more my, my work more productive and more efficient or whatever. Um, so people using AI, I think, are going to replace people who don't. Um, and there are a huge amount of question marks about, you know, not having a human in the loop and deploying these systems, right? They aren't perfect. A lot of people want them to be perfect. So that's where the temptation to kind of uh, release them and use them in that way comes from. But they aren't. And so I feel, yeah, kind of human guided AI is going to be the key for both businesses and individuals. It's like that co-creation framework, right? It's That's why a lot of these uh, big companies like Google and Microsoft are kind of referring to duet, you, you know, co-pilot, these kinds of terms, right? Um, but that's threatening primarily, you know, again, creative industry, knowledge industry. So that's, you know, people who are working in maybe graphic design, artists, um, people who are perhaps writing, you know, content journalists. We've seen several platforms recently either fold or massively cut back staff 
and claiming explicitly that they're going to try and focus more on AI-generated content. That includes BuzzFeed and CNET. Um, so, you know, those are clear signals. Um, education and educational content, you know, tools that help students or so, you know, and so on. Um, a couple of companies, um, the names uh, evade me at the moment, um, but they saw, I think it was a billion dollars wiped off their valuation when their CEOs, um, I think it was Pearson, one's a UK-based education resources company, um, when the CEO of another education company acknowledged the threat or the challenge of, of GPT-based systems. So, you know, a lot of roles where, you know, essentially obtaining precise knowledge that used to be domain-specific or required domain expertise or generating kind of creative audiovisual content, I feel are the areas where initially there's the most risk. I think moving forward, we'll start to see it impacting or at least people trying to deploy it in more high stakes contexts, such as legal contexts, um, potentially in scientific contexts, medical contexts, um, you know, and those are things I have deep reservations about, but I feel that, you know, that's a place where people will try to innovate, right? Um, where there are lower there are higher risk tolerance, uh, lower risk tolerances, sorry. But nonetheless, I think that's kind of, you know, a few years in the pipeline before we start to see people really trying to push in those spaces. I saw in your background that your actually background is in philosophy. Mm. So if we were to take a, a bird's eye view of history and development and go back to centuries where telescope was invented, the Petri dish was invented, we were able to distinguish different elements um, we are able to understand how the solar system works, eventually created tools, eventually created a computer, mm. and so on. Where are we now? If we look at the big picture and not just what's happened this year and not just what's happened last year, let's say if the metaverse is created or quantum. Well, okay, let's let's go with metaverse and quantum. Let's skip those because those might make quite a huge substantial difference. But other than that, where are we in time? I is the question how significant is this in relation to other human inventions and um yeah possibly well how significant is it is does it is it having a massive impact on how we function i mean we already see i'm pretty young and i see people that are only 10 15 years younger than me that already have a very different view and emotional reaction to technology and sharing of data and how open mm. everything is and just 15 years and it's already such a difference in their approach to 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 knowledge to their personal information and such so maybe maybe it is just momentary and it's it's part of a, a bigger bigger story of technology um or maybe not what do you think yeah so i feel that these technologies follow in a tradition of essentially moments of like ambiguous future shock i guess you could say which is if you look back to the you know the early 1900s people were putting up posters about the dangers of electricity and you've got people strung up in wires and you know there was a famous i say famous there was a new york times opinion piece around the telephone saying that telephones were going to turn us into translucent blobs of jelly or something you know we're never going to see anyone anymore you know talking about the philosophy angle you know i think it was plato saying that even you know writing stuff down takes away from the power and substance of the argument so there are kind of historical bad takes that we could see around new and evolving technologies. And, you know, there are legitimate questions about, well, 
do we see these as bad takes because we've just become so used to them and we cannot conceive or imagine a life without them which could be better even if it potentially was on certain on certain um metrics i would argue from the kind of socioeconomic development and life expectancy and all of these other things that we now have i don't think that's completely compelling but this current moment you know is one where i feel that yes we're kind of at a crossroad with our reaction to these things there's a lot of unease right there's a lot of uncertainty and the kind of fear and anxiety and and so on which typically comes from the unknown right facing the unknown and the way i often kind of frame this is well there are two ways that this could really go so one is that we are just scared of what we don't understand and this is like future shock this is kind of when alexa was first released and um, people were really uncomfortable about having a voice in their home and you know this kind of microphone and now it's just a sort of thing that no one notices so that's one angle is that we're just not used to it and we will get used to it and the benefits will become clear. The other angle is that sense of unease actually indicates a deeper sense of like ethical unease and is triggering an intuition that something's not quite right here, which is beyond just novelty of something I don't understand. And I think a lot of cases, in my view, in AI are of that latter category as much as some are definitely of the former. So I think a lot of cases around things like synthetic resurrection, bringing back deceased individuals, whether they're your family members or whether they're celebrities to act in films or record new music or whatever, when they never had the ability to consent to that being done is a really interesting and sticky area. You know, you can say, well, okay, their estate has consented to this, but are they in a position to kind of transitively provide that consent? Again, I don't think they really are. But, you know, there's an interesting question there about, again, how does society react to that? I think around topics such as AI companions, that's an area that we've seen a lot of really concerning and, well, I'm giving away my own opinion on this, but a lot of really, you know, interesting problems around people forming romantic attachments to AI chatbots and so on, a bit like that film, Her. Um, And, you know, people getting you know, mentally traumatized when these chatbots remove certain functionality and so on. So, you know, again, moving towards kind of like AI companions, both in a kind of romantic and other capacities, you know, should that be regulated? How should they be defined? You know, what kind of principles should govern how they are released and deployed? Um, You know, so this is a long-winded way of saying, I feel these technologies, and again, as mentioned at the beginning, generative AI in particular has reached a critical moment where it is disrupting more or less every aspect of daily life, whether that's how you communicate, whether that's how you work, whether that's how you play games, whether that's how you are creative. Um, It raises a huge amount of questions about what creativity is, um, what are kind of uh, sacred human aspects of communication, um, how should we relate to the dead, what is my personal identity right, how do I protect what I am is a clone voice of me as good as a as a as a uh, as a real recording. So there are loads of questions. And in that respect, I feel this is probably one of the most seismic moments in human history when it comes to technology. Um, we've never ever before had the ability to replicate reality and fine-grained versions of reality as we have right now. Um, yeah. What? is your favorite if you have one aspect of generative ai personally so not that it helps you know medicine and advancement in communication Mm. and stuff but personally 
Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I also should just clarify, by the way, that as much as I sound uh, the kind of warning often in my work, and I am very cautious about these technologies, and I feel, you know, hype cycles, as you mentioned earlier, around the metaverse and quantum computing and NFTs and all of these technologies, there's always a gulf between kind of hype and utility, right? So NFTs, lots of hype, in my humble opinion, not a huge amount of utility. Metaverse, I feel has got more long-term promise, but actual utility right now is still pretty low compared to the hype. Generative AI, lots of hype, but the utility is much closer to the actual hype than, than in other examples. And that's for good reason, because it's exciting, because it's powerful, because it helps us become more productive. It means we don't have to write those annoying emails, or we can get it to help change the style of a piece of writing to suit a better audience. It helps us create new music and new ways of making music. You know, it allows me to bring my kind of imagination to life in a way that I wasn't able to before just by prompting, right? So there are loads of really exciting use cases. I just fear that, you know, when it comes to an actual kind of on the scales of, of good and bad, the commercial and creative benefits aren't necessarily overall better than the harm that this could cause individuals and society. So I think that's why we need that caution. But in terms of my favorite use cases, it's definitely memes. There are so many good AI memes now. Um, and, you know, this is a space which has been growing for quite some time. In fact, back in 2017, when deepfakes first emerged, they emerged in, in a really unpleasant context of non-consensual pornography at, uh, attacking women. But around the same time, people realized, well, we don't have to use this technology for these cruel, horrible uses, we can use them to create just hilarious content of Nicolas Cage on, you know, Lewis Lane in Superman or on, you know, Jennifer Lawrence in a Dior advert or something like this, right? And they're just ridiculous. Again, raise some interesting questions about consent and what is kind of like fair use in satirical and parody contexts. Um, but there have been some really funny ones of like all of the old presidents playing um, Mario Party or Minecraft and having arguments. And it's just, it's so clearly their voices but obviously so clearly not them because of the content of what they're saying maybe um, it's comparative to like cartoons from like punch magazine you know 100 years ago um right we've moved on with technology so right or snl right saturday night live with impersonations or south park even um you know the creators of south park actually have now developed a deepfake studio they created a a pilot of a show called sassy justice using trump's face on like a small town reporter in the u.s and it was Again, in their classic style, incredibly inappropriate, but hilarious. Like, <laughs> that sounds really um, funny, actually. <laughs> it's pretty good. It's called Sassy Justice. I recommend you look it up and yeah, your viewers <laughs> or your listeners sorry, might find it interesting. Um, but yes, I think there's a lot of really quite fun, absurd use cases. But again, it's still a space where there's lots of gray areas. You know, um, what is fair use? We, we saw this recently with someone releasing a song of Drake and The Weeknd. Um, using their voices, but it was never recorded by them, and then putting a you know a, a, a mix behind it, and it was a a song that a lot of people really liked. It went viral, but then Universal Media Group, um, I think that's the name, or music, uh, sorry, Universal Me uh, Music Group, I did one of those two, but they, they got it taken down off all of the platforms. They said this is violating copyright. Raises really interesting questions. What if two people who sounded perfectly like Drake in the Weekend in their rapping style did the same thing? You know, the artist wasn't saying this was them. He was clear that this was an AI-generated piece of content. So what is different about someone's vocal cords creating that performance compared to AI? So those are some of the ones I find the most interesting, often quite funny in the satire context. 
but they're not, again, without their challenges and their gray areas. All right. Last question. What is a piece of music or any visual entertainment that you're listening to or watching right now? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I've been listening a lot to um, an album by John Hopkins, who's a British uh, electronic musician, but also classically trained pianist and um, an, an incredible musician. He did a a piece of work called Music for Psychedelic Therapy, which is an ambient piece, which he wrote as something to des- that's designed to accompany psychedelic, um, taking psychedelics and meditation. Now, I don't take psychedelics. I'm, I, I'm not my cup of tea, but this music's incredibly beautiful, meditative. And um, in a moment where the world is feeling quite crazy, and my world in particular in AI um, is moving incredibly fast. It's provided a very nice um, space to decompress and um, and relax. So recommend that to any of your listeners who are feeling equally overwhelmed with the AI hype uh, cycle. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss the next one. If you want better insights into challenges and decisions you or your business are facing, Gary's analytical services are of unmatched complexity and high accuracy. Whether your questions are on the green energy transition, trade and supply chains, or political and security related, contact us for a free consultation and see how you can optimize your decision making. Thank you for listening. This has been Last Week on Earth with Gary. Until next time, have a great day.